Welcome to another edition of On Mike with Jordan Rich, conversations with creative people that have a lot to say. And today's podcast comes with a warning label. Don't try this at home. <laughs> Just kidding around. Joining us today is Ryan North, New York Times bestselling author with several great books under his belt. He writes games and comic books, and as he says, boring old regular tomes. But his latest caught my eye and we just had to do it. It's called How to Take Over the World, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. And here's where we add the evil laugh. Ready? (laughs) Oh, that felt good. It is a tongue firmly placed in cheek intro to the science of comic book supervillains. And it really does explore science and real world technologies in a way that's, I'll just go ahead and say it, devilishly exciting and fun. <laughs> so without any further ado, somewhere from his secret lair, here's the author of How to Take Over the World, the one, the only, Ryan North. Joining us now, <laughs> on Mike. How to take over the world with a title like that? You got to be selling like hotcakes, or is the FBI looking into your <laughs> dossier? What's going on? <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that because when I was doing research for the book, uh, libraries and librarians are great, and they're there to help, and they don't ask inconvenient questions. Uh, but when I was searching the internet, I would sometimes, before I searched what I wanted to know, if it was really a suspicious thing, I'd search for like. FBI agent monitoring me. This is for a book, I promise. And then I search for the thing I want. <laughs> well, the subtitle is Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for Aspiring, the Aspiring Supervillain. And it, obviously, it's tongue-in-cheek every step of the way. But um, it's really a science book that makes you laugh out loud. And let's talk about you, first of all. You're a comic book creator, and whether it be for Dinosaur or Marvel, you've done some very creative things. But you're also a scientist. What's your background? Yeah, I uh, write a lot of comics for Marvel and DC, but I also, uh, my formal education is in computational linguistics, which is a field of AI concerned with getting computers to speak natural languages like the one we're using right now, English. (laughs) Is it a cliche to suggest that guys who are intellectual to that extent often become comic book fans and get into the world (laughs) of comic books? There's, there's, I think what joins, what attracts people to comics is, at least for me, it was the possibility, the the fact that yeah. when you are creating a comic, your special effects budget is effectively unlimited, right? It takes almost the same amount of time to draw a space station in the year 5000 as it does to draw an office in the present day. And so that lends itself to very imaginative stories, and that's always something that appealed to me. And writing a book like this... Uh, the imagination is taking this this fun fictional premise of you're going to become a supervillain and using that as as a lens to examine some really interesting actual science and technology and the right. the imagination of saying okay so if we want to you know dig to the Earth's core to hold it hostage but we can only do it with actual science and tech in the real world what does that look like how close can we get <laughs> that's really appealing to me yeah the, so uh, the origin of the book. I want to get into some of the specifics but. Uh, I also want to ask you about the research because it's in-depth research, obviously, to know, for instance, what it would cost in USD, U.S. dollars, to create your own secret lair. But before we get into secret lairs, how how did the research work for you? Was it everything available to you online, everything available to you in terms of colleagues to ask questions of? How did it go? Yeah, it was a lot of uh, 
using the library, a lot of research online, a lot of talking to, to scientists and researchers and saying stuff like, all right, this is going to sound like a weird question, but <laughs> <laughs> I promise there's a reason for it. Yeah. Uh, and people were, were extremely generous with their time. I feel like um, once you explain that like, this is really a book about learning about the edges of, of science and exploring what's possible, um, they, they get what you're saying with how to take over the world. <laughs> they get like, that's the appeal. Right. And they're, they were very generous with this. It was a lot of, it was years of research, but very, very fun research. It always felt like I was kind of getting away with something by getting to work on this book. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the tropes of the supervillain and the Bond villain and Dr. Evil mm-hmm. and all that, the tropes are so well known, so well established in pop culture uh, down through the ages, whether it be novels or comic books or movies. So you're you're tackling this very intricate and in some cases intense subject matter in a way that's so relatable because we can all imagine Dr. No <laughs> with his evil lair. So so uh, I think you hit on something. I think that's, the, on, in a way, it's a terrific avenue to deliver information uh, and entertainment at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was uh, the sort of first time I stumbled across that was with my last book, which was called How to Invent Everything, A Survival Guide for the Stranded Time Traveler. And the premise there was you've gone back in time and your time machine's broken, and this is the repair guide that says... <laughs> You can't fix your time machine. It's way too complicated. What you can do is rebuild civilization from scratch, so here's how you have to do it. And that that fictional motivation gave all the nonfiction a sparkle, and now you understood why we're learning this. And it, it changed it from feeling like it's, it's eating your vegetables or taking your vitamins or doing your homework and turning it more into, I want to be a better prepared time traveler. I want to know how much work it would be for me to take over the world. I want to be a credible supervillain. <laughs> and that becomes fun and not and yeah. not work and that's something that really interests me so let's delve let's delve in a little bit deeper and uh, for your ears and eyes only folks but this is important information and by the way love the dedication L- let's just talk about the dedication <laughs> i'm going to read it and but, and for those who are uninitiated the non-nerds out there for lex victor eric and dr isley <laughs> Well, Lex is obvious, so the, the, should be, but all the rest of them, too. Tell us about who they are. Yeah, the funny story with that was Lex is Lex Luthor, supervillain. Um, Victor is Victor Von Doom, supervillain, villain. Right. And Dr. Isley is, of course, Dr. Pamela Isley, better known as Poison Ivy from Batman's Rogue Gallery. And the funny story with that dedication is my I gave my parents a copy of the book when I got my copies. And I happen to have a brother whose name is Victor, and my dad was like, how come Victor got thanked and not me? <laughs> I was like, no, 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 this is Dr. Victor Von Doom. Yes. <laughs> I Victor promised Von... that. It wasn't meant as a slight. That's great. I, I got a chuckle right out at the, at the top. And we also should add that there are some wonderful illustrations in the book that accompany each, mm-hmm. each chapter heading and some sidebars. So let's start with uh, the, the opening salvo, and that has to do with the, the evil lair, uh, as I like to call it. And it's so funny because the, the latest Bond, I'm a huge Bond fan, it was almost. <laughs> it was. It wasn't. It almost old home week to see the the villain have that lair in the island. It was just so the warm and comforting. <laughs> yeah, feels like coming home, right? But you're talking about supervillains who require a space of their own, and one of the things I found fascinating was a chapter on how to start your own country. <laughs> <laughs> so how? What? Where do we begin? I, I got to get this down on paper here. I know you have it in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So basically, the first part of that chapter is walking people through the classic techniques and saying why this isn't going to work. Like, you just can't, you can't find land because it's all been found. You can't make land because that goes to the country that already was there. If a volcano makes new land, it goes to the country that's already there. You can't uh, be ceded land because no nations ever done that in the past. And you can't just take land because those are wars of aggression and those are horrible and we don't want to do that. So what I recommended is um, while all land has been discovered, mm. it hasn't necessarily been claimed. And there's this sliver of unclaimed land in Antarctica called Mary Birdland, which was frozen there in the 50s. The land claims were frozen in the 50s to prevent a war then with all the Antarctic powers. And those treaties, one of them thaws out in 2048, the Madrid mm. Protocol, which means that at that time, uh, this land might be again up for grabs. So my my suggested plot is not to march somewhere with guns, but to go to Antarctica and start a research base. <laughs> like sure. do the legitimate research for thirty years, and when that thaws out, uh, you now have a credible claim to this unclaimed land that you've been on, and this is a way that you can. It's not guaranteed, but it's a way that you could start your own country within the space of thirty years or so. As long and, as you remove you know, the Nazis that are already there, we all know there's a Nazi base. That- the polls. <laughs> yeah, just deal with that and you'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was a that was a, a fascinating bit of geography and history right there, but there's so much science in the book, and we're only going to take you through some of these things because they're so much fun. And uh, one of the things, uh, you mentioned it in the outset, about drilling through the center of the Earth, and first of all, mm-hmm. to the Earth's core, and there, there have been all kinds of movies and, and uh, Jules Verne and all this about getting inside the planet and digging deep and what we might find besides China. But what would be the mm-hmm. advantage to a supervillain to drilling to the center of the Earth, first of all? What would be that edge? Well, the nice thing we know from looking at meteorites is if we look at the Earth's crust and we say there's not a lot of gold in the Earth's crust, which is part of what makes it valuable. But if we look at meteorites, there's usually a heavier gold content there, and there's two explanations for that. The first is that, well, there's two possible reasons. The first is that when the Earth was molten, um, the gold could have been burned off. But the other explanation is that when the Earth was molten, all the heavier metals sunk and formed the nickel-iron core we now have, and that core probably has gold in it. It probably has a lot of gold in it. It probably has so much gold that if you mined it all, you could cover the surface of the earth with a layer half a meter deep. <laughs> so this is this is a really appealing amount of gold. And yeah, you'd crash the gold market if you did that, but that's just but one of the logistical problems you encounter when trying to dig to the earth hole to the earth's core. So that's why Oric Goldfinger decided to blow up Fort Knox instead of dig down deep. Because he realized... Yeah, he took a shortcut. He took a shortcut. Oh, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. So so that is one of them. Uh, you mentioned time travel, and of course, that floats my boat. Everyone's f- having fun with mm-hmm. that if you're into science fiction and comics and all that. But uh, there have been attempts by uh, dastardly fictional villains to mess around with time. But have you learned something new since Einstein's day about time? <laughs> well, I wanted to keep only actual science in the book and so the chapter on time travel says basically look i've done my best but all i've managed to do is travel through time at one second per second and only ever forwards but if that ever changes Mm. i'm going to go back and change this manuscript before we print it so Mm. check this book periodically (laughs) for updates so i can't promise that right now if you go out and buy it there'll be time travel instructions but if it ever gets discovered 
I promise I'll put them in the book. <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you also have a disclaimer, we should mention, that's very important for legal reasons, but also for humor reasons. And I love uh, what he says in the disclaimer, folks. Let me just see if I can find it again. I just read it about uh, don't try this at home. Uh, you don't try this anywhere, what's in this book. Don't try this at home. Don't try this on the ice caps. Don't try this anywhere. Um, yeah. You know, in all in all kidding aside for a moment, the world's a pretty dangerous place with some pretty dangerous mm-hmm. players. And we're seeing it as we record this. The war is raging in Ukraine and Europe for the first time, a war on Absolutely. land for 75 years. And we all know about uh, nuclear threats and biological threats and all that. There are... Uh, if not currently, then uh, wannabe supervillains in our world. So the, talk about the importance of knowing science from a security point of view, why that's so critical. Yeah, one of the things that I always kept in mind when writing the book is that I wanted to stay away from actual criminal acts because those mm-hmm. aren't fun, those aren't imaginative, those are just horrible and, and destructive. And so the distinction I had was uh, you have robbing a bank what happens in real life, and then you have stealing a bank, which is the supervillain <laughs> yes. escalation of it. We're going to take that building, it's ours now. And for the, the larger theme of the book, where it, where it ends up is saying, look, um, we started by, by wanting to take over the world, and in doing this, we've learned a ton about science and technology and history and mm. politics and everything. And what this does is it turns the world from something that is unknowable and unpredictable into something that can be understood. And when you understand it, you can influence it in a, in a positive direction. So I feel like my hope for people with this book is that they gain a better understanding of science, scientific method, where we are, what we're doing, how we're getting there, and it helps inspire them to, you know, chip off a little bit of the impossible and, and turn that into something possible and to, to see what you can learn through repeatable results that we get in science. So it's as much as a book with a cover that says how to take over the world is instantly appealing to me as an adult and as like a 10-year-old. Mm. I, I would love to read that book. And I, one of my friends, 10-year-olds, read it and I was like, I'm so pleased for you. <laughs> Can't wait to see what you do. Um, I feel like the, the core message of the book is one of celebrating reason and understanding and turning the unknown into the known. Excellent point. And the old uh, cliche in most of these movies involving supervillains is always, if only he had turned his genius to good. It's almost expected, right, in a Spider-Man film yeah. or something. But uh, <laughs> to, to bring it to, to reality for a second, if you look at and forget about his personality and all the things that you can knock uh, him for, but look at Elon Musk who dares to dream, dream big, and pulls off what people said couldn't be done, not just the electric car so successful, but the launching into space. And, I mean, that that to me is a sign that we still, we as a the species still have it, that thirst to know more and to do more. Um, There's definitely room to dream still, yeah. for sure. And it was I was very pleased when he uh, launched his old car into space. I was like, that is at least super villain and <laughs> Like, you know what? My car is now in orbit of Mars done. And I felt like that, that I was pleased to see that happen. Well, there's so much here in, in, in the book. Talk about the end of the chapters, because that's kind of interesting, the way you sum up each chapter. I thought that was well done. Yeah. So I, 
the same with How to Invent Everything. I wanted the book to actually be what it says on the cover. We have this fictional premise, but we have to do right by it and take it seriously. And so every chapter ends with this executive summary of here's what you can expect for this to cost, here's what you can expect for it to make, here's how long you can expect for it to mature, and really treating it like almost like a prospectus you'd bring mm-hmm. to a bank to get a loan. Be like, I've, here, I've done my due diligence. Here's everything you need to know and the problems you might encounter. And the fun with that was how it did... It forced me to, like, there's no shortcuts. You have to actually research this and figure out what the cost would be. But it also made it so much more real when you're, when you're at the level of pricing things out for your, like, secret floating base in Antarctica or to, to de-extinctify dinosaurs through genetic <laughs> manipulation of chickens and ostriches. You're getting to a point where this now becomes credible and real. Like, this is, this is not wild fantasy. This is actual science and research that people are doing, and here's what it would cost. Indeed. But I enjoyed that aspect of it a lot. Yeah, that's fun. And what's also fun, I teased it earlier, this, I call them sidebars or little extra nuggets. And for instance, I just opened mm-hmm. any page in How to Take Over the World by Ryan North, and here's one on the passenger pigeon. And I had no idea that before its extinction, uh, it was the world's most popular abundant species of bird. That's fascinating. And I didn't even realize they were yeah. extinct, quite frankly. Yeah, no, it's 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 wild how, when you look at history, my, my observation has been like, when you factor in the average human lifespan, you can start to see when things get forgotten. And the pasture pigeon going from this flock, colossal flock of birds in North mm. America, there maybe just five across the entire continent, that could blacken the sky for days to being extinct within a lifetime, and then a human lifetime after that uh, being forgotten because we don't see these these colossal flocks of birds blackening the skies and covering everything in droppings anymore. And now it seems fantastic, and it just hmm. it's how things fade into myth and legend. But we've been lucky enough to live in an era and to build an era where we we record things better, we write things down, we we try to pass them on to the future so that we don't forget things like this and we can build on things like that. And the advantage of doing all those sidebars and sort of digressions is that when you find really cool stuff in your research, you can be like, here it is. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily say that it's tangential, but like, this is really cool. And I want to share this really cool fact with you. You brought this up is one of the joys of being a writer. Yeah. You brought up uh, something and I, I regret the fact that they made a movie with Polly Shore about the biosphere, which was too bad, uh, because the actual story of the famous dome biosphere is fa- absolutely fascinating. I didn't know any of this, especially the part about the bugs and the roaches. <laughs> and just, again, what my point is, I'd like you to talk a little bit about it, but Ryan, I was thinking in terms of time and perspective, that was only 30 years ago or 25 or 30 years ago, right? The 90s, early 90s? Yeah. And it yeah. seems like I, I, a distant memory. It wasn't that long ago, but even then, I didn't know enough about it. I do now. What's what fascinated you about the Biosphere Project? The Biosphere Project really feels, again, like supervillain adjacent. Where a group of people say, "You know what? We want to see if humans can survive on their own sustainably in an enclosed environment. So let's just build it. Right. <laughs> build a series of structures, all joined." They'll be recycling their oxygen, recycling their water. Everything's self-contained. All that goes in is electricity, and all that comes out is information. And the, the amazing thing about the biosphere experiment, which lasted two years, and they pulled it off, 
was the challenges were less. I mean, there were challenges in, in farming and those bugs you mentioned where uh, roaches got in. And so instead of killing the roaches and throwing them out, they would vacuum them up and feed them to their chickens to turn mm. ugly, disgusting bugs into delicious eggs, which is great and clever. <laughs> but the big challenge they faced was the human problem where you have eight people together for two years and personality conflicts bloom and they split into two groups that barely spoke to each other and just like the hatred these people who used to be best friends before they went in developed over these two years is is wild Mm. and also useful if you are building a secret base and need to have a secret staff of hench people you need to select them for not getting (laughs) weird and angry and breaking off into cliques (laughs) yeah there's, there's like legitimate Sorry? No, I was going to say, the henchmen that I'm thinking of in all the standard movies wear similar jumpsuit uniforms carrying rifles, and they are easy fodder for the hero. They don't seem to have any life yeah. at all. But <laughs> No inner life there, no. I would recommend, if you're doing something like a biosphere, a secret self-contained base, uh, don't give your people rifles or any sort of weapons. <laughs> yeah. There's, there, it's hard to be alone with seven other people, turns out. And I don't think you need to bring guns into that. Lord of the Flies, or in that case, Lord of the Roaches, perhaps uh, more likely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have two more questions, and you've been fabulous, and I, I just think you're uh, extremely sharp and funny. Ryan North, the New York no, Times bestselling author, How to Take Over the World. And because you're also involved with AI and you have a science and math background, is the frontier of the digital world and uh, the, the dark web and all that kind of stuff, is that something that because it gives power, likely power, to certain people who know what they're doing, is it something we need to worry about? I mean, I think at a low level, you should be aware of, of everything, and I guess be a little bit worried about everything. <laughs> but honestly, if you look at um, the latest advances in AI, like GPT-3's language generation, a lot of these algorithms are relying on huge amounts of data being thrown at them. And it, get, it gets you progress, but in some sense, it's a cheat because we're not necessarily solving the fundamental issues that we're trying to encounter when trying to build an artificial mind or an intelligence we can talk to. We're saying we don't really know how to do that, but if we throw a lot of data at it, we can get a little bit closer to something that approximates it. So you have things like GPT-3, which can generate really credible text, but don't really understand what mm. they're saying. <laughs> There's this hollowness to them. So I'm not uh, I'm not bullish on you know AIs taking over and destroying humanity in the Terminator scenario just yet, which I think is good. I'm glad that, that is not the case. <laughs> you think it's good that it's not? The, yeah, let's just state for the record: you don't think it's good that they should take it over because you know people hearing this, yeah. you wrote how to take over the world. <laughs> um, one more, one I'm more. I'm on the side of humans. I know you are. You're a good. You're a good egg after all. The space question, which has to do with uh, controlling. Certainly the upper atmosphere, what's in space. Uh, we know that as we speak, the Russians who share uh, space room on the space station, the International Space Station, made a comment that they might want to leave our guy up there and strand him, like an old movie called mm-hmm. Marooned with Gregory Peck. But uh, seriously, the, the, the idea of, of a government like China or Russia or any government uh, messing around in space and taking control of what is just open air right now. That's why we have, quote-unquote, the Space Force. But tell me, from your vantage point, what we should be concerned about, if anything. I think we have a really good track record of collaborating in space. It's interesting because uh, in the uh, Start Your Own Country chapter, I'm looking at Antarctica, 
and we have a better, we have built like literal international space stations in actual space, mm-hmm. and we still haven't figured out how to have shared research stations in Antarctica for all the countries there. So the 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 interpersonal is difficult, the interpolitical is difficult, but for whatever reason, I think it's because we can all see the importance of it. Uh, cooperating in space has somehow been easier. I think there's across humanity this idea that. You know, if you look at space as being this quote-unquote final frontier, you want to do better there. You want it to be a place where we don't bring the same old stuff with us. And I don't think human nature changes that quickly, but I've taken a lot of of solace in how we have been generally, not perfectly, but generally we've been better in space than we have been on Earth. And I feel like that's... Mm at least something that's pointing in the positive direction. I think you're right. I think the the camaraderie and the need to survive together has been part of that. And you know what they say, the astronauts who look down on the Earth get a totally different perspective from up there. Mm-hmm. And too bad all of us can't take a spin in Bezos' ship and, and see that. But um, no, I, I appreciate your insight into this because uh, we, we want to make sure people understand that your work, and this book particularly, even though it's hysterically funny and very well thought out, knowledge is power, but used in the right way, it's a very, it's a very positive thing. Very positive thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I have a lot of faith in humans at the end of the day. What, now, w- real quick, on the comic book side, tell us about what you're doing with Marvel. Anything at the moment? Yeah, we just uh, finished a five-year run on a character called Squirrel Girl, who has all the powers of a squirrel and all the powers of a girl, and she fights crime, and she's great. Hmm. And the fun thing about her is that she's a really smart young woman, and so she fights crime using her intellect a lot of the time, where she'll try to find a solution with her brain rather than just you know, grabbing a criminal and punching him until he stops doing crime. (laughs) Is she likely to wind up on the big screen or the small screen, or is she already up there? Uh, She's not up there yet, but I feel like at the rate Marvel is making movies, (laughs) I'm sure at some point we'll get to see a bit of Squirrel Girl somewhere. I'd love to see it. I think she's a wonderful character. Well, uh, good for you for uh, bringing her along, and thank you again. The book is called How to Take Over the World, uh, Practical Schemes and Scientific Solutions for the Aspiring Supervillain. And it's loads of fun, but more importantly, it's loads of great information and learning. Ryan, I wish you the best. Thank you. I really appreciate that. This was a lot of fun. I love it. For more, go to supervillainbook.com. Read all about Ryan North and how to take over the world. But just do me a favor. If you're planning on taking over the world, text me to give me a heads up, will you? Thanks. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry at Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce this and many other podcasts, audiobooks, narrations, and more. Find out more about me and the podcast at jordanrich.com. And a special thank you to new listeners joining us all the time. It is great knowing that we're connecting with you. Till next time, this is JR saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.